Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. very pleased to be in conversation with Scott Ludlam for the next 45 minutes or so. Um, Scott is a former Greens Senator for WA and now a writer. Uh, In his book, Full Circle, A Search for the World That Comes Next, Scott lets us in on his thinking about how to bring about big change. Uh, He takes us on the road with him as he travels to Beirut and Bangladesh and Brazil and India and, of course, Australia, uh, where he meets activists and community organisers and green politicians who are seeking to shape what comes next. Um, We hope you can stay with us for this special live-to-air broadcast where coming to you from the Triple R performance space uh, and broadcasting on FM, digital and Triple R's website and socials. Uh, you can watch the conversation by heading to rrr.org.au where we are video streaming this conversation and it's great to have so many with you watching already. Uh, this conversation is happening on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, the traditional owners of the land on which we're broadcasting from today. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and future, and extend uh, our respect to other Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people streaming, listening or watching this broadcast today. Welcome. Uh, Scott, it's great to have you here at Triple R and to host us, host you in um, our village square here. It's really nice to be back. It's wonderful. And um, your book is quite different to kind of a standard political memoir people might expect from an ex-politician. I wonder if you can start by walking us through what you wanted to do with the book and how that reflects on what you've been doing since leaving Parliament. Okay. All right, let's go. Well, it's kind of the opposite of a memoir. I really didn't want to write down a bunch of personal history and anecdotes and gossip. And I figured if I'm too bored to write that, then people aren't going to want to read it. So it's not that. It's more an exploration of all the big picture questions that I just didn't really have time to engage with while I was in that job. And so it's, it's more that. And it's, it's the process of me opening up my own horizons to speak to people doing similar kinds of work to what I'd been involved in, but as far from home as I could get. Yeah, and I feel in many ways, uh, Scott, you, you let us in on how your brain works a bit in this oh, I'm book. I'm so sorry. Um, I didn't realise I was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel that, I mean, you are doing it for yourself, but I think also asking us to look at things afresh, look at it a new, um, even the way we construct houses and all the systems that go into making, you know, fresh water flow and things like that. Was that, I guess that was intentional as part of writing the book? It is intentional. It's stripping back the layers on things that we come to believe are, norm- are normal and kind of peeling back some of the surface superficial layers to examine how completely not normal, like how weird the present moment is. And it's, it's a technique, I guess, borrowed from, from science fiction writers who are writing about the present day in terms of science fiction, where you don't have to stretch things very far to realise that we're living in a profoundly strange time. 
You take us to a whole bunch of different places around the world, including Lebanon, South Africa, the Jharkhand region of India, and Mongolia. What led you to these places? And, and I guess, what were you hoping to get out of being there and looking to potentially impart to others um, based on your experience in Parliament here in Australia? Well, the itinerary kind of wrote itself. So I I put it together mostly in at the end of 2017 and early or all of 2018 I was on the road based on global greens networks I mean the green party here is embedded within a, a global network of emerging green parties some of them quite established around the world and I'd met a lot of those folk but only ever here or in Aotearoa New Zealand I'd never been on their ground so was that was working with the peace movement, the global um, nuclear weapons disarmament movement, who've obviously got very broadly extended networks. Folk that I knew from my former life, so that was what took me back to Jharkhand in India. I'd been there before in 1999, so I guess, yeah, nearly 20 years ago. And I, I basically was just leaning on people to sit down with me and grab a coffee and talk about their work, and that, that's how the itinerary kind of self-organised. Was it Jharkhand with that you went to and you were part of a, a parade. Um, yes, and that was a really... Did that, that was, happen the first time you were there? No, the first time I was there, I was snuck in in the back of a taxi because the folk I was with were really worried about police and security forces clocking to the existence of a foreigner um, and somebody um, who would be able to you know, tell the world what was going on there. This time, the social movements there, like they're established in a very different way. They made my presence there extremely public. We were garlanded and paraded down the main street of Jadagoda, this little town in, in what used to be Bihar in the eastern part of India and is now Jharkhand, where the majority of India's uranium comes from for weapons and for nuclear power. And the social movements that have sprung up to defend their, their land there are immensely powerful, very creative. Yeah, and I, I guess, um, you know, in thinking about that trip and who you met there and what you did, um, I mean, I'm also thinking of your trip to Beirut. And, I mean, that is a city that's gone through a lot uh, over a long period of time. And you meet with Greens Party um, people there. What I mean, are the Greens sort of politicians or budding politicians similar in Beirut to here or is it quite different, like their politics, you know, in, in many ways is quite different to here? Yeah, the situation they find themselves in is, is different to here, but they are they are engaged in trying to crack into the electoral system of a, of an ex, a deeply corrupt sectarian oligarchy. And so they what they're up against is, is really different in scale, I suppose, to what we confront here in Australia. There have been Greens in Parliament, state and federal in Australia since the mid-1980s, whereas in, in Lebanon, the establishment has it so locked down that it's very difficult for people of an independent view or who aren't backed either by a foreign superpower or one of the major religious sects, it's really difficult to get a voice in, a secular feminist voice. And so these kick-ass women are organising electorally, but also within broad-based social movements to try and crack that electoral armour. And so this naive old me wanders in there on invitation to do some training. And of course, they taught me a lot more than I taught them. But I suppose the whole book was a process of that. What were some of those things that you took from that experience and others as you met with people overseas and, you know, had nine years of parliamentary politics under your belt? But what specifically about the way that activism is happening in, in Beirut and in Mongolia did you find inspiring and useful for Australia? The thing that came through the strongest, and it really hit me in a place called Mathare, which is the oldest 
slum in Nairobi is the degree to which social movement organising is based in, in community building, that it's not narrowly defined in any of these places. And it's the same with First Nations organisers here in Australia. These campaigns aren't constituted narrowly as, oh, we have to stop a mine or we have to, you know, stop native forest logging or we're defending ourselves from, from whatever threatening process is there. Or in the case of Nairobi, it's police executions. They are doing very broad-based community strengthening, community organising based on family, based on, on enduring friendships, and that's what gives them their power rather than simply this kind of narrow political objectives. Uh, that felt like it was an experience that was repeated everywhere I went. And was it familiar to your experiences in Australia? Because, I mean, through we, we get sort of little vignettes, I guess, of your experience as an activist um, prior to entering the Senate, um, but also probably since. Like, I, I can, I, I got the impression in the book that even as a senator, you would go and sit at the tent embassy, for instance, in, in Canberra and keep those connections you know, strong with those in community movements. But with what you saw as you travelled, um, was it familiar to you in that sense of your early activism? It did It did feel that way. For, for a political movement like the Greens, our tradition is built out of civil society movements, out of the peace movement, out of um, feminist activists in the 1970s and 80s, out of the nuclear disarmament movement. And for a party like the Greens, if we lose those connections with the civil society organisers, we're lost. So we all made pretty certain to maintain those connections. That was what made the job bearable, to be honest, was that we continue to work with these incredible organisers right around the country. Seeing that um, experience repeated in different parts of the world was really affirming in a way, and it did feel familiar. So my background was in anti-nuclear campaigning, where you immediately are kind of thrown out of my white environmentalist comfort zone and into the fact that you're engaged in a land rights struggle that's been going on for more than 200 years. And I guess reflecting on that and, and both your life before entering the Senate um, and what you've experienced in the years since, I mean, you note in the book that parliaments are only one narrow forum for exercise of collective agency, and you've clearly been involved in a range of different initiatives and social movements since then. How do you reflect on what you sought to achieve within parliament, sort of inside the tent, so to speak, um, and what you might hope to achieve working outside of that with grassroots organisations? Well, I mean, parliament is, it is a locus of collective agency, at the scale of the nation state. So it's where we've delegated a lot of decision-making functions, extremely important ones, um, right through economics, through social policy, through environmental policy. A lot of big decisions are made there um, in those places. And it is worth getting people into those rooms because you get the platform, you get the soapbox, but you also get access to the parliamentary library and to staff, <clears throat> to the ability to travel and to continue your campaign work that way. And the levers of a, of a legislature. Oh, you know, we swung committees into really important areas. We stopped, we, we helped a movement stop a radioactive waste dump. We were part of the campaign that stopped internet filtering. <clears throat> um, and as I go into in the book, the leadership of, of Christine Milne and Bob Brown and Julia Gillard, we were able to pass world-leading climate laws. The problem being that, and, and that's the case study that I sort of trace throughout the book, is that those, most of those um, clean energy laws were repealed by the coal and the gas industry. They installed Tony Abbott by spending pocket change on swinging an election and set us back by a decade. 
So for those sort of changes, those legislative changes to be enduring, we've got to build greater civil society power outside the parliament, including by people who aren't the least bit interested in electoral politics, uh, so that we can bed down those kind of wins and institutionalise those wins. I wasn't going to ask you this um, straight away, but I am particularly interested in the sort of Clean Energy Act that you're part of passing with other with independents and, and so forth. And I, I guess I've noticed recently that the federal government is um, quite proud of its track record in seeing a 19% drop in emissions on 2005 levels and, of course, under Paris where Australia's gunning for sort of 26 to 28% um, emissions reductions. And I guess I'm, you know, we've been following these issues long enough um, on the grapevine, on, on Triple R, and, and to know that the majority of the percentage drop in emissions, national emissions, occurred in that period when we had a Clean Energy Act and, you know, 3% last year during COVID. Um, I mean, what's your sense when you when you hear that the government, current government is really quite proud of, of that record? That they're massively hypocritical bastards with no policy sense and absolutely no principles at all. They tried, I mean, they, they were successful in rolling back the bulk of the clean energy laws. So they only were enacted for a period of, of two or so years. But they, despite repeated attempts, they weren't able to dismantle the Clean Energy Finance Corporation or ARENA. Uh, they've been trying to smash up its mandate. They tried to cut its funding. They tried to sack its CEO. And they tried to repeal those laws multiple times and were unable to because of the, the strength of the crossbench, because Labor stayed firm on, on locking in that um, that mandate. So what it's meant is that we've had this continual pipeline of investment and in research and development into clean energy technology since, um, since those laws were enacted after the 2010 election. They've, they've done everything in their power to wreck that on the behalf of the investors who, who finance their campaigns. And yet when they're at the Paris Climate Conference or when someone sticks a microphone under their nose, they take credit for it. It drives me bonkers. But that's what we're up against. That's the scale of duplicity that we're up against. Oh, I wonder, just to follow straight on from that, I wonder then, you know, with your forward-looking book that um, Full Circle is, you know, what can change and shift? I mean, I guess now we're looking at the sort of... Um, the companies that are investing in, in fossil fuels and the like have continued to do that over the past 10 years or you know almost 10 years since that uh, that act was um, largely dismantled. Um, I don't know if anyone's counted how many dollars weren't going wasn't going into clean energy because the act isn't there anymore in its form. Um, but are you thinking now we might see the funds start to shift to clean energy because it's inevitable? I don't I don't think anything is inevitable. I think we are on a downhill slope now because the clean energy technologies are cheaper than the dirty ones. And that fundamentally reshapes the way investors think about the industry. It's not going to be enough. And it's what it's done, I think, both the pandemic smashing up demand globally, like the coal industry had a pretty bad 2020. The gas industry, you can sort of see the writing on the wall as well. And domestic demand is is slowly falling off a cliff because so many people are installing solar. You can see batteries are now getting cheaper. So it does change the way that um, that the market sees these technologies. But what it's done is it's driven these investor blocks and these industries directly into the arms of government into a form of what I think you'd call state capture elsewhere in the world, which is much deeper and more systematic than corruption. But it means that elections don't really shift their incumbency doesn't matter whether Labor win or the, the Conservatives win, the coal industry, the oil and gas industry still can form a working majority. They can block any big picture reform. So for me, it, it, 
um, it, it enhances the role of the crossbench and independents and people who aren't being bankrolled by the resources sector. And it, it for me, it's a real clarion call for civil society organisers to get out there and for people in the investment community to help drive that change. And that concept of state capture plays a pretty large role in this book. During your time in Parliament, and I'm interested in sort of the, the backroom conversations you'd have with some of your colleagues and the crossbench and so on, uh, how apparent was it at the time just how much influence the fossil fuels industry had on decision making? Well, a lot. And you saw it not just with the clean energy package, but also with the mining tax, where the Minerals Council spent, I think it was in the order of $22 million to roll Kevin Rudd out of office to abolish a tax and to then write their own version of the tax with, um, I think it was with Martin Ferguson. Uh, so they they literally will will be working the corridors of that building with amendments to, to laws, to draft bills. And I didn't have the language at the time to describe it as state capture. I used to think it was just corrupt. But it, that doesn't really fit for me because you assume in a corrupt system that people are breaking laws. But there are no laws being broken here because, of course, these people are writing the laws. So that, for me, is a big mental shift, the degree to um, which it's very systematic. And that the, the bizarre nature of it, these people, some of them know exactly the kind of future they're driving us into and yet they're doing it anyway and you go to the, go to the website of AGL and it's covered in solar panels and wind turbines and you wouldn't know just from looking at their homepage that they are the country's largest greenhouse polluter they know exactly what they're doing and they know the kind of messaging they need to pitch to retain their social license but they do it anyway were there many dissenters within the ranks of the major parties who might have been aware of this uh, threat, I suppose, or the influence of some of these organisations and, and lobbies? Um, might have been aware of it, but not didn't feel empowered enough to do anything about it or, or speak openly about it to their colleagues within the parties they were part of? Within the major parties? Mm. No, well, look, credit where it's due. Um, two successive Labor Prime Ministers just in the time I've been involved in these things did attempt mm. to make changes, did take these industries on and paid a pretty serious price for it. I think that's one of the reasons Labor is such a traumatised organisation these days, is that they saw two Prime Ministers in succession bundled out of office through these very concentrated and well-funded lobbying exercises that has no bearing at all on the way democracies are meant to work. And then they have the nerve to turn around and tell us that it was the will of the people. That It's, it's really quite malicious. So... I, I think credit where it's due when you when you do have people who are attempting to drive these reforms. It's just, <clears throat> for me, the lasting lesson is the power of the crossbench. We were able to come to the table with Prime Minister Gillard because Adam had just won the seat of Melbourne, which gave us negotiating leverage, which was handed to us by people in Melbourne, by voters and by volunteers. <clears throat> and I think that's a useful lesson as we go into each election campaign to remember that, that we do have this power if we choose to use it. And the other lesson is let's not wait for the next election to roll around. There's other ways of building power. Yeah, and you, you mention uh, in your book, Scott, uh, I mean, you have a, have a look at the, the Black Lives Matter, Me Too movement, school strike for climate, and I guess also at the, the Occupy movement. And definitely some of those social movements have had huge um, influence and they've been really important to start a whole lot of conversations and to put, you know, kids at the front, for instance, of, of um, conversations about the future. The Occupy movement has, wasn't around as long. And I wonder, in your sense, um, what makes a social movement uh, have influence? What gives it its power, do you think? 
I think it's different every time and it is difficult to generalise, but they all meet a need that's unstated. I think for those ones that have these runaway cascades, so all of those ones you just name-checked, are examples of movement cascades where a small spark, some, some kind of initiating event, whether it be Greta Thunberg with a placard or, um, you know, somebody like Brittany Higgins who's putting herself at enormous personal risk to name something which everybody knows is happening and just to provide that spark or something tragic like a police execution in the United States that then sets off this movement cascade that for a period of time is unstoppable and it's just going to, it's going to continue to grow and to knock on as more people realize that truth is being spoken. And what happens is <clears throat> states or political parties or leaders or members of the establishment become quite expert at shutting those cascades down. Sometimes it happens inadvertently through a pandemic, but often it's happened through very targeted, you know, propaganda surges that either try to delegitimize the source of the movement or its leadership or its structure or its aims. And that's what we're engaged in. And it's a life or death struggle, particularly in the context of climate change. If you've just tuned in, we are going live with Scott Ludlam from the Triple R Performance Space, talking all about his book, Full Circle, a search for the world that comes next. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And I suppose picking up on some of those threads just before the break around social movements and, and how to advance um, sort of positive social change in solidarity with others, um, there's one part of the book where you talk about the language of the climate emergency and having some unease about what that might suggest about, you know, rights being suspended to deal with an emergency situation, and that's what kind of emergency powers are for. How do you see uh, the role of that, I suppose, given what we've experienced with the pandemic, where we've kind of taken a hit, a lot of us, and, and accepted that we can't go outside for periods of time, but also there's been some responses to that on the streets and so on that are often driven by kind of misinformation. How do we kind of move forward when there's these challenges for us at this point in time around the climate emergency and the pandemic? pandemic? Well, there's a lot there. So I, I feel a bit ambivalent towards the emergency framing, but it's worth recognising that it's been part of mainstream climate discourse for more than a decade, um, from the UN on down. And that is actually very productive. I, I think actually that movement started here in Melbourne. Um, there's a council that initiated an emergency declaration as a result of um, quite adept local organising. What it meant for the council was um, decarbonising, making sure their investment portfolio wasn't funding coal or gas, um, the community gardens, and just a whole range of, of very appropriately targeted policies in, within the council catchment. If you, try to, if you try to bring that emergency declaration language into the national discourse, you've just got to be very careful because... Uh, emergency powers are a double-edged sword, particularly when wielded by people like Scott Morrison or Peter Dutton. If Dutton announced a climate emergency tomorrow, I would freak the hell out because I don't want that guy wielding any more power than he already does. So there's a there's a bit in the book and, and where Extinction Rebellion is coming from because they incorporated the emergency declaration into one of their key demands, which has, again, thrown it onto the front page. But you've got to be aware that XR is also asking for citizens' assemblies. They're asking for a radical extension of democracy to replace or augment the failed structures that we're dealing with at the moment. Citizens' assembly is actually a terrifically exciting idea. So we have to recall that those demands are indivisible. They're not arguing for 
for more powers to accrue to states or for you know military intervention. They're arguing for citizens' assemblies, and I just think we've got to keep those. We've got to keep all those things in mind at the same time. Yeah, so on one hand, a, a climate emergency in the hands of one is different in the hands of another. And I guess as, um, you know, residents of, of Melbourne or wherever we might be around the world, that's just worth keeping in mind because I think it's quite true. Uh, the way that some people are saying emergency isn't the same as keeping citizens out of the country, for instance, um, yeah. as we're seeing at the moment. But, I mean, I guess I'm curious about your... Um, your sense of how our sort of representative democracy is going. I mean, you do do a call to action in the book where you say lean in and help shape the next turn of the wheel. And and really in the context of this crisis that we're in at the moment, the, the COVID crisis, the climate crisis, being an opportunity. We don't want to waste opportunities, but I mean, what's your sense of whether we will or not? It's just again, it's so hard to generalise. But there's this is one of the gifts, I suppose, of some of the systems ideas that are in the book. That there are particular moments that are very opportune for new ideas, for innovation, and for things that otherwise would have just been ignored or remain at the margins to come into the centre of things. And often it's after big catastrophes or big disruptions that you get these really contradictory cross-currents. Firstly, Naomi Klein calls it the shock doctrine, that societies in a state of disarray or collapse are prone to exploitation by the powerful. And that's a very common and familiar pattern. But it's also the best time for new ideas to arise. Um, during the, the Great Depression, for example, you saw effectively the president um, in the 1930s in the United States introducing these tools of state planning and state socialism to rescue capitalism with uh, trade union organising and with huge social security payments and with direct employment of people. And it took a disaster to bring those policies into play. I suppose what we're looking at in the context of, of climate change is can we just not wait for collapse? Can we bring some of those measures in rather than saving capitalism? Can we replace it? Can we roll in um, much more human-centred and ecological regenerative forms of economics before the collapse hits because it's going to be very difficult to pull ourselves out of this one if we really let it get away from us. I, I just want to um, quote just from you without asking a question. You call it an you know, ecological civilization, and I think it was socialism with tofu, which actually made me laugh because, I mean, it, it is a humorous book as well. Um, I don't think I'll read out your quote about Morrissey, but I did um, laugh at that one as well. <laughs> so. If you can't laugh at this stuff, I think we'd be completely <laughs> lost. But that's just, it's a sort of a sideways take of being aware of what would happen in Australia if the right wing, if the hard xenophobic right <clears throat> were to suddenly realise that there's power for them in recognising climate change and they will use, they'll, they'll weaponise those concepts to harden the borders, to lock people up in concentration camps and to, you know, ramp up and weaponise these anxieties <clears throat> in service to very, very old agendas of white supremacy. We should name that and we should see that coming. And I suppose on that note and, and thinking about uh, democracy and and properly enhancing, I suppose, the voice of ordinary people um, on issues like climate change and so on, what's the role for compromise and, I guess, uh, trying to 
form some kind of alliances with people from vastly different experiences who, for example, I mean, the Adani issue is, is a prominent one where it might be wedged against, you know, local jobs compared to those who are concerned about climate change and that sort of thing. How do you see the role of grassroots campaigns in forming those kinds of alliances when we have very much a shared interest in addressing the issue of climate change and renewable energy and, and that kind of thing? I suppose it, yeah, it comes back to that question of social movements rather than fighting a campaign on very narrow terms, Mm. doing community building. So it's this ethic of just transitions, which sounds like a slogan, but in places where it's been tried, such as Germany, where they're quite steadily phasing out not just the nuclear industry, but now large parts of the coal mining and coal generation industry as well, they've done it in a very premeditated and planned way so that communities that are impacted or communities that have that very narrow economic base, which is quite common in parts of regional Australia, rather than just shutting the plant down, throwing everybody out into the street, there's a measured transition plan in terms of training, community development, education, relocation for people who want to leave, housing support, and and looking at supporting the other industries that maybe the resources sector blocks out and makes difficult, whether it be agriculture, horticulture, tourism, different forms of manufacturing. So, and, and the trade union movement here in Australia is across it, but I think we've been held back by that form of state capture where even entertaining the transition conversation has been too much for industry to accommodate. And we, we have to press on and do that because otherwise you get these very abrupt closures of power stations or of mines that really do throw the workforces out into the street. I'd love you um, to run by your sort of working theory, I guess, that um, you write about um, putting to Peter uh, Drogi um, in in Germany, um, this idea that, um, you know, perhaps our sort of human systems, our industrial systems um, could follow natural ecological systems. Maybe we could learn something from those. And you run it by Peter, and I guess I am... Maybe because I do this as well, but this idea of you sort of getting the guts up to, to run it by him because he, he is uh, a big thinker on the climate challenge and really getting things done. What was his response, I guess, to, to your working theory? He, he didn't buy it at all. And it was, such a, it was such a light bulb moment. But I've been fascinated for years. And Peter's one of the best people in the world writing about uh, urban theory, urban planning <clears throat> from a point of view of, of um, closed loop urban systems and low-carbon urban systems. And I studied this a little bit at uni and and got to study with some of the best people in the country on this stuff, that urban planners commonly talk about urban metabolism, which I just found really fascinating because that's a concept lifted directly from biology. What is this piece of the city or what is this entire city ingesting, processing, using, and then dumping? And that's, that's... metabolism and how does that work in a planning context if you're designing cities and so that has taken me and a huge section of the book is down this rabbit hole of well can we learn from that what can we learn from that and also living systems aren't just metabolism they are all these they have all these other qualities as well should we look at boundaries should we look at perpetuation and perception and memory and he he thought about it and then he said, well, not really because natural systems don't have money. They don't have this kind of intermediate medium of exchange that is, is operating out at right angles to anything that's ever been invented um, by, by natural systems. And that, that kind of blows your metaphor up. And I was a bit crestfallen and then I thought, well, yeah, it does blow the metaphor up and that's actually really important. So let's talk about the role of money. 
And what is the role of money? It's driving this extinction cascade. Mm. It's this mathematical construct that's born as debt. It's loaned into existence. You have to pay it back with interest within a fixed period of time, or they'll chuck you out into the street. And it's it's entrained and dragged the rest of the material economy into this doubling cascade, which is what is driving not just the destruction of natural systems, but also the destruction of our cities. You know, it's mining. It's a very extractive form of money, and it's mining our time. Now, this is nothing that Karl Marx hadn't said 150 years ago, but it's a, it's a slightly different formulation of it, I guess. In a lot of ways, there's some really big picture ideas in this book about you know how we can transform some of these large systems that we're very much implicated within, often without you know whether we like it or not. How do you sort of tease that, I suppose, with your grassroots activism and and the importance of advancing positive social movements on quite particular issues um, when the end game might be to kind of upend some of these systems that have wrought uh, damage to the environment but to people's livelihoods as well. Mm. I guess the, the, the principal thing that informs what I've been trying to do is that these systems are about to upend themselves because the doubling cascade or a positive feedback cascade which the this particular viral form of economics is undergoing they they crash they have they you know it's a crash habit they routinely crash but we're coming into the foothills of a very steep crash because the planets you know various systems are starting to buckle underneath this thing so it's buggered it's going to crash and not because greenies are standing on the sideline saying so it's this is what it does And so we'd best meet that and we'd best be ready with the safety net and be starting to throw that down under people before it happens. Um, But, yeah, I just guess that's – it's not that the greenies want to crash the economy. It's a crash-prone economy and we're proposing something much more regenerative and circular that isn't continually doing that. Um, can you speak a little bit about the role that you see that investors play? Because I think investors, I mean, they come in all shapes and sizes, and I guess we're seeing more investors speak about values. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Mark Carney in the book. He yeah. used to head up the Bank of England, and I think he's got his own book that he's out promoting at the moment, uh, but talking about values. And, yeah, in Australia, when we see some business leaders try and inject discussions around values, um, that it's not appreciated by by some politicians. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, what what do you see as the role of the investor in in what what comes next? Well, it's complicated, isn't it? But I think there's a section of the investment community that's just looking at the numbers and looking at the fact that in the energy sector, the clean technology is now cheaper than the dirty technology, and your rate of return is going to be better. There's other sections of the investment community that haven't clocked yet that if you burn your asset down, it's not going to repay you the money that you lent it. And that's that's what was driving Mark Carney's speech. He's saying we can either do this transition or it's going to be forced upon us. And what happens with these very highly leveraged systems where everybody owes money to everybody else is that if you get a break in the chain of payments, um, it sets off these crash cascades. You know, It sets off, well... I'm defaulting, which means you default, which means you three banks default, which means you 20 banks default, and the whole thing goes over like a house of cards. That's what he was warning the insurance industry about back in 2015. It's like we can manage this as a transition or we can watch the whole thing cave in at some point where everybody's rushing for the door at the same time. And that was five years ago. And there are shifts and there are big blocks of capital moving out of the dirty technology and into the clean, but I just don't think we can trust 
anything as deranged as a global financial market to manage this transition for us. So even though there are people inside who are clearly on, on the right side of the argument, I don't think we can leave it to that because somebody invents some hideously toxic new form of nuclear power tomorrow and there's a better rate of return there, they'll all go and stampede over there. Um, this has to be a democratic conversation, not a market-led or a market-driven one. How does that play out, do you think, in practice? I mean, you're not. this isn't sort of a book with a 10-point plan about what must be done, but if we're concerned about these kinds of issues and ensuring that the transition is, you know, the effects of that, I suppose, aren't imparted on those who are already disadvantaged and, and disenfranchised by the current systems we have in place, what do we need to be very mindful of kind of getting right uh, and making sure that our voice is heard and, and we're forming those alliances in, in the most uh, kind of promising way possible. Oh, I think that's really beautifully put. I guess that's the ethic of climate justice in a nutshell. It's that we're not trying to narrowly replace one energy technology with another while leaving the rest of society as it is. That's the first thing to be aware of, I suppose, that this is this touches everything. This is very, very broad and very deep. And that some of the people who are copying the hardest costs of the climate damage that's already being inflicted or the result of this extinction cascade are the people who've had the least to do with it, people in the Pacific Islands or people in South, South Asia. And so for me, again, it, it just comes down to that radical democratisation of the movement uh, and of our society so that we're hearing from all these voices. In Australia, it's Aboriginal people and First Nations communities who've been fighting extinction for 230 years. It's, it's not folks who are, you know, who've been at this work for, for the last five minutes. We have to bed this movement down, I think, and, and acknowledge that we're joining a much older intergenerational movement for a different kind of society or preservation of the, of the stuff that's been there all along. What do you, I mean, you travelled to, to put this book, book together, um, Scott, and I think, I mean, you went to um, Samarco, oh, that's, we went to Brazil and saw what happened with the Samarco Dam disaster, which um, I guess might be helpful to just describe that a little bit before um, speaking about it more. But what was it like to see that? I mean, did you need to see these sorts of disasters with your own eyes to kind of get the full power of it? Because many of us actually don't get, don't go there, you know, no, to see it. It does help. Whether it's pre-disaster and you're trying to protect a place from being destroyed or after places have been destroyed, it makes, a, it makes a really profound difference if you've actually been there, spoken to local people and just stood in the middle of it quietly. The places tend to speak to you and the people who are around certainly will speak to you as well. So that's, that's an iron ore mine, a massive tailings dam that was run by a joint venture of BHP and Vale in Brazil and they lost control of the tailings dam. It breached in... Uh, I think about 2015 or thereabouts, and uh, killed a few dozen people in a village upstream that was absolutely wiped out and then sluiced down 600 kilometres of waterways and was just dumping millions of tonnes of this pulverised iron ore and heavy metals, mud, into the Atlantic. And uh, I visited a village where they had been able to get out in time. They were given a brief amount of warning and they evacuated. But you could see the high tide line on the mud was three metres high. So I was standing in a schoolroom just with these books and these kids' chairs encased in mud. And at the time, the affected community still hadn't been compensated. They're involved now in this multi-year process of litigation to try and get some 
um, some kind of compensation, and there are other people working to try and prevent it from happening again. And a couple of years later, it did happen again. And the point is, these companies just carry on. They've set aside a certain amount for fighting legal battles, minimal amount of compensation, a certain amount on lobbying and getting politicians elected so they don't face the consequences. It's priced into the business model, not just in Brazil, but all over the world. And I just figure we can't fight this thing if we can't see it. If we can't really diagnose it and name it up, then it's, it's going to be impossible to stop it from doing this to us again. And you've done that in a really interesting way in this book. I wonder, what are you kind of up to now? This is your, your debut book. You've been writing essays and, and, and articles and so on over the past few years since you left Parliament. Are you a writer now? What's, what's your kind of uh, I don't next know few what I am like? now. I don't know. And yeah, this is my first turn of this wheel. So I think in the short term, it's having conversations like these. If people are interested, if it taps into ideas that others are having and work that's already being done, then I will chase this book around the country talking to whoever is interested. That's my project for the moment. But you'll also notice on the way through that there are a couple of suggestions for resources and for um, kind of initiatives that we could do with. And so probably a little bit early to speak of them, but you'll notice if you've got an eye on the book that there are a couple of suggestions in there and, and things that I'm working on. So... Um, yeah, there's plenty to do, but in the short term, it's basically, well, let's have this conversation if people are up for it. What is, what's the world that comes next? What does it look like if we win? Because we're pretty familiar with what happens if they just keep rolling over us. But what does it look like if all these movements around the world and here in Australia, roughly at the same time, if they were to prevail and succeed, what does that look like? Let's talk about that. Yeah, and I mean, you do say that it was an unexpected year that you spent on the road. One thing led to another. Um, unexpected invitations, unexpected leaving of politics, um, and you know, and now this unexpected book, which I'm I'm personally so pleased that you wrote. I guess, you know, at the moment, I mean, you're you you know, you're not a citizenship expert, but you've had to deal with citizenship. <laughs> I know more about it than I used to. Yeah, and I guess you know that is a really big issue at the moment, and I know it's sort of. Um, politics to say what does Australian citizenship even mean anymore but I guess you know it feels like a question we can ask you what does Australian citizenship mean do you think in in 2021 Scott? Well it's been a rough couple of weeks for the concept of citizenship hasn't it but I'm actually quite impressed by how sharp the backlash was on this bullshit with people trying to get home from India that they've been walking that back steadily from the moment that they announced it because of how sharp the backlash was and from how many different quarters it came. So from the usual suspects, but also from a lot of their own people who've just gone, you just took a step too far. Um, because it was so overtly racist, real mask off stuff presumably came out of Peter Dutton's brain and they and it sounded good to them, so away they go. So, I, I mean, it's a, an impossibly brutal time for people trying to get back from India or people with loved ones in India and other parts of the world where this pandemic has still got its teeth in in a major way. But I guess it's just worth pausing for a moment to notice how when they cross the line and the backlash is there, those are one of those moments of slippage where we can press on and not just talk about citizenship, but talk about humanity. These are human beings. Um, these, whether, whether they're Australian citizens or not, there are parts of the world that are being grievously harmed by Australia's position on, uh, on intellectual property and on whether vaccine technologies can be freely shared across borders. There's there's a certain section towards the end of the book where 
you, I kind of realized we have to start dissolving the borders in our minds that define us as a citizen of one place or another and reestablish our identity as, as one enormous planetary family, which is ultimately is true. Like biologically and geologically, that's the truth. But these borders in, that have been implanted and drawn in our minds are, are actually immeasurably harmful. Thanks, Scott. Um, that's 45 minutes. Can you believe it? Um, we could keep talking, of course, um, but we're out of time. And so thanks so much for hanging out with us in the performance space. We're glad that you've signed the rock and roll wall bef- behind us here <laughs> uh, with your name. Just uh, for even further imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> All the best with the book. And, um, and I'm sure people um, can have a look for you. You know, there's all sorts of events that Scott's part of. It's been great to have you at Triple R. Full Circle is the book, A Search for the World That Comes Next. Uh, and you have been listening to Scott Ludlam live in conversation on the grapevine coming to you from the Triple R performance space. Uh, uh, Full Circle is out now via Black Ink. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.